Hello, this is Leslie Garfield-Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today I'm speaking with Professor Lawrence Leslie about his new book, Fidelity and Constraint, published by Oxford University Press. Lawrence Lessig is the Roy L. Furman Professor of Law at Harvard Law School. In this episode, I speak with Professor Lessig about his newest book, Fidelity and Constraint, how the Supreme Court has read the American Constitution. Professor Lessig explores the fundamental challenges of interpreting the U.S. Constitution over time. The book maps the strategies that both help judges understand fundamental conflict at the heart of interpretation whenever it arises and work around the limits it inevitably creates. In Fidelity and Constraint, Professor Lessig clearly explores past Supreme Court decisions through a modern interpretive lens and draws analogies to present-day experiences, making the book an understandable and a compelling read for law students, lawyers, and anyone interested in studying the law. Fidelity and Constraint is available at independent booksellers and online at IndieBound.org. You can also find the book at most major booksellers, including Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble. Here's my discussion with Professor Lessig. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming and welcome and congratulations on your new book, Fidelity and Constraint, which is published by Oxford Press. It is available at Amazon and bookstores, particularly independent bookstores. And what fortuitous timing, because the law students are about to go on summer break. And this makes, I think, for a great read. Um, But I really do think that its audience is much broader and the book really appeals to anyone interested in understanding how contemporary justices have to approach interpretation of kind of our centuries old constitution. Um, but I guess a good place to begin to ask is, what do you mean by fidelity, specifically fidelity to role and fidelity to meaning as it pertains to judicial decision making? Well, I was motivated to think about fidelity originally in the sense of meaning. Um, yeah, I studied philosophy and I was really obsessed with the philosophy of meaning. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in the so-called uh, originalists who's, who seem to you know, argue for a particular theory of meaning, which obviously philosophers were really connected to because it connected pretty directly to debates happening in that field too. But um, but as I began to recognize that the concept of fidelity itself um, is embedded in a tradition, um, that there were more than one kind of fidelity going on. And it was actually um, Steve Calabresi uh, um, who pushed me in this direction at a conference in 1995 at Fordham, where he was, you know, saying some of these changes against what might be thought to be the right meaning of the Constitution could be motivated by some different conception of the job of a judge, faithful to the role of the court or the role of the institution, and how to make that institution thrive. And so recognizing that there's two kinds of fidelities going on at the same time, um, led me to have a way to understand the evolution of this doctrine in a more robust way than just focusing just on the question of meaning. Right. And so how do the two types of fidelity about, um, that you speak about kind of work together? I think in the kind of ideal case or in the simplified version, what, what happens is the court wants to give the answer that's faithful to the meaning mm-hmm. of the Constitution. Like, that's, like, what they think their job is, right. interpret and do And sometimes they feel themselves constrained, uh, that they, you know, this move or this interpretation um, 
creates costs that are also legitimate for the court to reckon. And that, that's part of the burden of the book, to try to say, look, you might think that these fidelity to role uh, um, uh, examples are just examples of the court misbehaving or the court not doing its job. And what I wanted to insist in the book is that to understand the project of constitutional adjudication is to recognize that the court has a role to defend the institution and to make sure the institution can survive and, and develop the authority that it needs to do its job. And that's what the best of fidelity to role is trying to do. And so um, I think that they're not mistakes. They're the uh, natural or maybe inevitable constraints of a judicial body within a democratic institution. And that's a really good point, because I think that particularly for people who aren't necessarily lawyers, they don't understand that the institution is the institution of judicial judicial decision making of interpreting the Constitution, that they think that this is, you know, society is either to the right or society is to the left. And so there's a sense of a need to reflect societal mores more than protect the idea of judicial decision making. I don't know. Would you agree with that? I think that's exactly right. I think that um, uh, we, you know, if you're not inside of the institution of American law, you tend to look at the court, or at least what's reported from the court, in a very simplified political way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what I was struck by when I clerked at the court, you know, even though I was a law student, I should have known this, but when I clerked at the court... I was astonished by the number of decisions that were unanimous, that there was, you know, no political valence at all to it. It was just getting the right answer. And, um, and, and so what really motivated me in this book was to say, is there a way to interpret the work of the institution charitably um, in the sense of believing they're trying to do what they're doing for the best possible reasons? And if you did that, if you adopted this attitude of charity, would that framing um, – I give you a deeper understanding of the dynamic of constitutional interpretation. And, you know, I guess we'll see if it holds up. But I think in the end, I believe at least it did. Oh, I think it did, too. And, and, and the book is not political by any stretch of the imagination. But I do want to ask kind of a political question now that you've raised it. Because to your point, it's rare. We don't see unanimous opinions quite as frequently as I suspect you did quite some time ago. So I'm wondering if, you're, if you were hoping that this book may bring people back um, I shouldn't say people may bring justices back from this notion of politicizing the court to a more central community. Well, I, I you know, it, everybody writes a book and hopes that justices read it. I don't have any, I have any um, illusion that it's going to sway the court directly in one way or the other. But I do think that there's, you know, the objective of the book was to try to get both sides to step back from the self-righteousness. Mm-hmm. And to recognize the thing that they're accusing the other side of, they do themselves. Right. And that rather than seeing this as a bad thing, we ought to embrace it and say it's a good thing. It's a good thing that um, we are trying as hard as we can to make the values that we think of, uh, that we think live in the Constitution and we care to defend as, as vital and alive today as we possibly can. And, you know, conservatives are going to care about values different from the values that liberals care about. That's just human nature. But the, but the, but the enterprise of saying, I'm a conservative, and therefore I'm going to make federalism as vital as I can, or I'm a liberal, and therefore I'm going to make privacy as vital as I can, is an enterprise that we ought to celebrate. We ought to say that's, 
that's a great thing in a constitutional republic, at least one that is uh, burdened by a constitution that cannot be amended. And then once we see it as a great thing, and then we can, then we can step back and say, well, when is it done well? When is it done poorly? What are the kind of constraints that ought to limit it? And when we see the constraints that are limiting it, we ought to be um, we ought to be more open to and understanding um, to the doctrine that is the response to those constraints. I think that's the most of what I'm trying to get. And I think the book does such a good job of that, particularly how you lay out the chapters and you dedicate a fair amount of time to um, fidelity on the left and then an equal amount of time to fidelity on the right, because it gives the reader an understanding of the same definition looked at from two different political spectrums. And you do, I, I personally think from reading it, that you do a very good job of explaining that it's really kind of the same actors doing the same kind of actions through different political lenses and reaching, in a way, similar conclusions. One, another question I have for you is that you speak of one-step and two-step originalists, and um, particularly with your discussion in Chapter 15 about the Fourth Amendment and the privacy and how invasion of privacy used to be going um, trespassing, and now invasion of privacy is using phones. And I'm just wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on your discussion of what one-step and two-step originalists and what that means. Yeah, so the, the wiretapping cases are a perfect illustration of one-step and two-step originalism. So one-step originalism says, go back to the framing and ask the question, how would the framers have resolved this case? And then take that resolution and carry it back to the present. And that's your answer. So in the trespass case, in the wiretapping cases, mm -hmm. um, the original context uh, in the original context, all the Fourth Amendment did was limit the government's power to modify trespass law. So it said if you're going to um, uphold somebody's search of uh, land on the basis of a warrant, there has to be probable cause to support the warrant. The warrant can't be a general warrant. It has to be a specific warrant. But those were all ways of basically empowering or emboldening the underlying trespass law. So with wiretapping, what Chief Justice uh, William Howard Taft did is he went back to the framing and he asked the question, would tapping somebody's telephone wire trespass on their property? And the answer was no, it didn't. They tapped the wire after it left the property. So there is no trespass. And so if there's no trespass, then there can be no trigger to the kind of interest that the Fourth Amendment was trying to protect. So therefore, wiretapping is constitutional. Now, by contrast, Justice Brandeis, who's a classic um, two-step translator, mm -hmm. um, says, look, go back there and understand what they were trying to protect. They were trying to protect the intimacy and the sanctity of one's home from intrusion. Um, and then ask the question, how do we do that today, given the technologies of today? And given the change in technologies, what we should do is to translate uh, those old values into a new context to preserve the same values they were trying to preserve but in a radically different context. That's two-step translation. And, and obviously, I'm supporting the idea of two-step translation or two-step fidelity, which is you know, kind of translation, because I think that that's the only way to preserve uh, original meaning or preserve the meaning of anything across radically different contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and so that, that sets up the conception of fidelity to meaning, this kind of two-step originalism. And, um, and then the question is whether that conception conflicts with a different kind of fidelity, which is fidelity to rule. And, and so do you think that our Constitution would ever be able to survive if all of the justices were only one-step originalists? I mean, it seems to me like, and, and I guess 
if a majority of the justices are one step originalists, would that end in defeat of our constitution? Which is kind of, I know, yeah. a dire way to look at it, but. Um, yeah. I think I think it would because I think you know the, the Supreme Court can't live in La La Land for long, and one step originalism, at least with respect to some issues, uh, um, creates an enormous um, pressure on the institution of the court because people look at it and just think this is totally out of tune with the times. You know, mm-hmm. if you were one step originalist today. And you said, well, the Fourth Amendment doesn't protect anything against trespass, so it's totally fine for the government to read every email, totally fine for the government to watch everything you do on the web, totally fine for the government to, you know, have spy satellites that peer right down into your bedroom because they can see with infrared um, uh, uh, what's exactly going on in your bedroom. People would say, this just is not our, this is not a constitution we want to defend. Why why would we like such a stupid uh, set of rules? So, so I think in a certain sense, this is another you know, theme running through the book, um, these institutions of constitutional courts live within political institutions. And those political institutions live within a democracy. And unless they cohere, unless they, uh, uh, you know, back each other up, um, they're not going to survive. And and I think the, the history of our court bears that out, because I think the court has been very sensitive to keep itself within the domain of, of, of sane, even if it's on the right of that domain or on the left of that. So do you think there's any threat of the Constitution not surviving? I mean, is this, given, you know, the ideology of of many of the court justices? Oh, I think, um, I genuinely fear for the uh, Constitution and the Republic in that sense. I mean, you know, not because of the Supreme Court directly. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in other work that I'm doing about the nature of our democracy, I think, you know, we can, we should all recognize the way in which this institution crafted by the framers of this elaborate system of checks and balances, when combined with uh, corrupting influence of fundraising in politics and uh, polarized media of today, those things all together have basically poured molasses into this finely um, balanced um, uh, Swiss watch of a democracy and made it so we can't work anymore, we can't function. And if yeah. we can't function, at a certain point, that conflict becomes uh, fundamental. And, 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 uh, and so I'm, you know, genuinely worried that I don't, we don't have a clear way out of that problem. And, and the Supreme Court's just part of it, but um, the Supreme Court could make it worse. Right. Um, yeah. So, all right. So I just want to change gears a little bit. You write about instances where I thought this was a great quote, translation causes dissonance. Can you explain what you meant by that? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, the values of our framers are not necessarily our values. And so as we carry them into the present, they could easily create this conflict where people are like, well, that's interesting, but that's just not what I believe. I don't like that. Um, and, you know, sometimes that happens for uh, what I think of a proper liberal translation. Sometimes that might happen for conservative translation. And, and so the question the court has to face then is whether it will, you know, sing the tune in a way that creates the dissonance or find a way either not to sing the tune or to change the change the melody. Now, I actually am somebody who believes that it, the court should not update the Constitution in the sense of make different value judgments than the Constitution makes. So I, I think there's a difference between translation and, you know, modifying the Constitution. 
But I do think that there's this pressure that the court can't just will away, and sometimes the easier thing might be just to bend and let it let it be what uh, the people want it to be. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I always I, can't, I come I think of gun control, and I mean I don't know. It just seems to me this right to bear arms. The Second Amendment is one of the one of the one of the amendments that seems stated in the 1700s. I mean, given all the you know horrible. Yeah. crime that's happening today. And, and and that's the one where, you know, when you say the value of our framers are not the same as the value of our own, I mean, that's the one that, that bothers me most because I feel that that was a value of our framers. And it's not the value of our own, but it's maybe not the value of my own, but it certainly is the value of a lot of people's. And and, and it troubles me, you know, and, and I feel that that's a, quite a defining side. I don't know, how would, is there any way to get out of reasoning of that. I mean, I just feel that that's where the originalists really do kind of come back and wave their flag that this is what the framers intended. Well, I, so I wanted to do much more on the second amendment and, uh, I just at a certain point felt like I would not get the book out before I died. If I, if I actually tried to answer the second amendment point. Yeah, I gave some hints and, and I actually think as a, there's a more interesting reading of the Second Amendment that the court has just lost over. And and that is, I actually think, you know, if you recognize the fact that at the framing, the fundamental right to bear arms, nobody thought of as a natural right. Um, you know, in the way that they thought due process or equality was a natural right. They didn't think the right to bear arms was a natural, natural, natural right. Instead, what they were doing in the Bill of Rights was saying, look, we the state get to decide on the rules regulating guns. You, the federal government, do not. And the reason that was important is they didn't want the federal government to basically disarm the states and therefore be able to take them over or destroy federalism. So they, so the constitutional settlement was, this is a matter for local regulation, and we forbid you, the federal government, from mucking about with our local regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that conception of the Second Amendment just is not amenable to... Um, the traditional kind of incorporation argument, you know, the argument that says the Bill of Rights now have to be incorporated against the state. Because if it really was a kind of jurisdiction statement, like regulations of guns get done at the state level, not at the federal government level, there's no reason to say regulation of guns get done at the local level and not at the state level, or that there can't be regulation of guns, right? I mean, the point is, if it is this federalist amendment, the conclusion of a proper interpretation of it, even today is the federal government can't regulate guns, but the states can, which means that Chicago says there should, shall be no handguns in the city of Chicago because we've seen the damage that they do. A properly federalist interpretation of the Second Amendment would say that's totally fine because this is for Illinois to decide. It's not for the federal government to decide. Where, by contrast, if the federal government said there, sh- you know, there can't be um, uh, AK-47s, or there can't be these kinds of guns at the local level, then the Federalist interpretation of the Second Amendment would be, look, this is not for you to decide, federal government, because this is for the state. So that means that I, I think that this argument would say that the proper interpretation of the Second Amendment um, doesn't require a lot of translation or a lot of updating for anything. All it does is to, all it needs is to respect this Federalist understanding and you would get a world where states can take care of themselves. And I think today, states would be in a really great position to take care of themselves. In mm-hmm. many, you know, we can take care of themselves. And, you know, if, if Utah or Montana 
doesn't want to have any gun regulation, okay, fine. That doesn't bother me. That's for them to decide. Um, but Chicago and, and Washington, D.C., damn well better be able to regulate guns because obviously, you know, guns in Utah are different from guns in Chicago. Right. But I guess under that analogous, if you, analogy, if you think about the whole idea of choice, I mean, today, actually, I think it was um, Alabama tried to or passed a very restrictive law on a woman's right to choose. And so if Roe v. Wade goes away, then all the states get to decide individually what their right of choice is, which... No, no, no. I actually think this is different. So what I'm saying is that the design of the Second Amendment was federalist. Mm -hmm. The values that justify Roe versus Wade are not federalist. They're not about defining who gets to decide the question. They're values that define what the scope of government's power in general should be. So, you know, my view of the Roe right is if you believe that there's some limit that government cannot cross, that there's something that the government should not be able to regulate because it just reaches too deeply into matters that are at the core of someone's being. Um, uh, if there is that category, then Roe fits within it, or you know, mm -hmm. the right to choose fits within it. And it's not that it fits within it for the states, but not for the federal government. It just fits within it from the standpoint of what we understand due process to be, given that we now apply due process both to the federal government and the state government. So this is a different question from the Second Amendment question, which is just Second Amendment is saying who gets to regulate guns. And that, that's just as easy to interpret today as it was in 1850 as it was in 1791. Mm -hmm. The states get to regulate guns, and the federal government doesn't. That, that's the settlement that is the Constitution. I see. I see. Um, all right. So we began by talking about fidelity, and this has been such a great conversation. But I just want to end by asking you what you mean by constraint. I know you touched on it, but could you just... For people who have not yet read the book, can you explain what you mean, since it's called Fidelity and Constraint, what you mean by constraint? Well, yeah, it's, and it's the hardest idea in the book. Um, uh, and so I'm not sure I have an easy way to introduce it. Um, but the intuition is pretty, it should be pretty clear, right? So uh, the point is that sometimes the context itself renders the judgment uh, uh, difficult or um, questionable. So, you know, I give the example in the book of, like, let's say a judge works out a question of whether a contract case goes for the plaintiff or for the defendant. And after working really hard, he writes a 50-page opinion that says it goes for the plaintiff. And then two days later, you discover that his uh, a partner has 100 shares of stock in the plaintiff's company. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so in the, in the hypo, as I'm giving it, you know, I said, the judge has nothing to do, doesn't know anything about that stock, doesn't have any relation at all to whether um, the stock benefits uh, his partner or not. But um, from the public's perspective, this is really fundamental because this undermines our confidence in the judgment of the judge because a reasonable person would wonder whether a judge in that position um, would uh, be affected by the economic consequence to his partner. That's the kind of constraint that I want to generalize in the context of constitutional adjudication. And I want to say that sometimes um, the court is put in a position where it can see that its judgment, even though it thinks its judgment is correct, its judgment will create institutional cost. And the time the court was the most explicit about this, really astonishing opinion, was the joint opinion in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the case where the Supreme Court 
um, balked at the idea of overturning Roe versus Wade. And what that joint opinion basically said was, look, uh, we've seen this campaign for the last um, 20 years to overturn Roe. We've seen it manifest itself in presidents who are elected for the purpose of appointing justices to overturn Roe. And we understand that we three um, are all appointed for the purpose of overturning Roe. We see that. I mean, it doesn't say it like directly, like right. that, but that's what it's basically saying. And then the fact that we would be perceived as just basically carrying out the political will of the president would undermine the institution of the court as an adjudicator or an expositor uh, of the meeting of the Constitution. And so what they say basically is, however difficult we think this first judgment was, the institution cannot withstand us reversing under fire. And so there was an express acknowledgement that maybe the Constitution goes one way, but the constraints of the context force us to go the other way. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the uh, constraint, infidelity and constraint that I mean. It's when the court realizes that its judgment will have consequences for the institution or for the understanding of the integrity of the institution that it ducks and it weaves to avoid those consequences. And, 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 and thank goodness it does, because, and that's kind of the overarching theme of your book, is the importance of the court to maintain the integrity of the Constitution as a viable, living, breathing document so that we can move forward years and years and decades and centuries from the time the framers first wrote it. Yep. So, exactly right. Thank you so much. I, yeah. It just, it's such an, it's, it's an easy read. It's an interesting read. It's a provocative read. And, um, I was glad I had the chance to read it and really glad I had the chance to speak with you about it. I really appreciate you taking the time. I'm so grateful you took the time. Okay, Take care. Thank you. Fidelity and Constraints is available both online at IndieBound.org, Amazon.com and Barnes & Noble, and through most major booksellers. For those of you who have just finished finals, congratulations. And thank you to all who supported us with reviews and subscriptions this past academic year. If you haven't already, please subscribe on whichever platform on which you listen. And if you have a particular topic you would like us to address or a professor with whom you'd like us to speak, please send us an email at lawtofact.gmail.com or tweet us at lawtofact. We listen. Thanks as always to www.bensound.com for the music and enjoy your day. 